Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So you have probably noticed the big pile of construction going on out there. And they're building a new dormitory for the center. And as I mentioned, I had started coming here about uh, 20 years ago. But this place, uh, IMS, has been a meditation center since 1975. So even longer than that. And prior to that, it was a uh, Catholic monastery, the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, 1950s. So in case you're wondering about the Jesus stained glass windows in the Buddhist meditation center, that's what that's about, as well as the bowling alley. And then prior to that, it was actually a lieutenant governor's mansion, uh, apparently, in some point in the past. So when I first came here, actually, the, there were still more vestiges of the um, Catholic monastery here. In fact, this area where uh, Pascal and I are sitting on was um, kind of what used to be the altar. So there was a big red carpet, uh, large area. It always reminded me of like business class in the meditation center. It's like a raised red area that people would actually sit on in the front rows, you know. Uh, and then some years ago, they uh, renovated and put this nice wood floor in and things like that. So in a macro way, this illustrates the uh, principle of change that we've been talking about you know, over time. So this building is not really one thing. 
you know, for a while it was this lieutenant governor's mansion, and then it's shifted into this Catholic monastery, and then it's shifted into this meditation center, and now it's morphing and growing this other arm over there. And so we can see this in some ways on a larger scale, but this is actually a very important part of the Dharma, of what we can understand about not just outside things like buildings uh, and externalities, but also actually even about ourselves. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about what we're up to here in the practice and what there is that we can learn and apply for our lives. So these teachings of the Dharma we mentioned are the teachings of the truth of the way things are. So this Buddha was a guy who lived 2,600 years ago. And as I mentioned, he went on his own spiritual quest, his existential uh, questions to be answered by practice. And then he came to some understanding about them. And then this is actually what he taught, was what he had discovered through paying attention So it wasn't actually like some esoteric philosophy that he made up. It was actually a description about reality that he discovered through paying attention. So this is also then something that all of us, even thousands of years later, can actually discover uh, in order to understand. And I like this description of the the Dhamma as the truth of the way things are as nature because uh, it also goes to where this practice might be leading, which is that the more that we understand that and the more that we actually are able to align our own actions and our mind with nature, with the way things are, then basically the happier and more harmonious our life is. And the more that we try to resist that and fight against that and act like things that are true are not true, then the more that we suffer. So to illustrate this, I'll use a principle like the law of gravity is, for example, uh, aspect of nature, of the way things are, a physical law, right? And when kids are born, when babies are born, they don't necessarily know about the law of gravity. So you can see babies experimenting with this in, uh, in high chairs, right? Like throwing things off the side, uh, like peas and carrots and... Um, spoons and cups and anything, right? And then watching it fall. And then it's like interesting to see that, like, oh yeah. And then pushing this other thing and like that also, oh, that also is going to fall, right? And then sometimes it's a game to get the grown-ups to fetch it and put it back on the the table too, right? Um, But after a while, like you get the idea with this, you know, you get the, the understanding of it. So, you know, for example, so here I have some spoons, right? So if I try to place this spoon in midair, like what's going to happen? Right? It's going to fall, right? So probably no one here was surprised about that. And then, you know, you could think like, oh, okay, so that happened there, but what if I do it over here? Right? What if I don't look? <laughs> Same thing, right? It falls. What if I do it higher, right? Same thing, it falls, and so on, right? So after a while, it's like an understanding. Oh, this is the law of gravity. This is how things work. Don't know exactly how it works. Don't know, like, oh, is someone running that? Who's running it? Don't know, right? That's, this is also actually applicable in 
the Buddhist teachings is like not to worry about that kind of thing. Just pay attention to understanding how it works. And so once you understand how it works, then you can do things that make your life easier. For example, I'll not try to place this glass of water in midair, right? Because I know if I do, it's going to fall and spill, and there's going to be a big mess. And if, by chance, you know, sometime accidentally something happens. So actually, uh, recently I was trying to pull a uh, coffee filter out of a coffee machine, like an automatic one, and then the whole thing came out and the wet ground spilled all over and the coffee filter was a big mess. Uh, so I was like, okay, so I need to clean it up. But it wasn't like, why did that happen? I don't understand, right? It was like, oh yeah, okay. It came out and it fell to the ground. It wasn't surprising to me. So I didn't have to spend a lot of time uh, fussing with that, nor did I take it personally. Right? So it's not like, you know, if I try and drop the spoon, place it here and it drops, it's not like, you know, why me? Like, right? <laughs> like, why now? Why? You know? So this is just the truth of the way things are, right? In this physical realm. And then once you understand that, it's like, okay, you can live in accordance with that, and there's less broken glass, and there's less spilled water, and there's actually just less emotional friction in your life from uh, taking things personally and worrying about it and so on. So similarly, the Buddha described these truths about phenomenal existence, about our lives, about experience. And this is what we have been talking about in terms of the three characteristics. Now, when you sit and pay attention in your experience, uh, the first thing that you often start to notice is maybe not even that level, but actually on the content level. So you start to notice that you're actually resisting a lot of things. So there's different emotions that come up that are difficult for you. Or there are different memories that come up that you don't really want to be with. Or there are certain... Uh, ideas about yourself that you don't like that have arisen. There's certain physical sensations in the body that we don't want to bear. So this is one level of the practice, is actually starting to open to all of life's experience, to all of the different mind-body experiences that flow through our consciousness and our awareness. And as you pay attention to that, you might notice, like, oh, actually, I spend a lot of time resisting experience of one kind or another. And you might notice this in your practice. Sometimes if you're getting really tired or occasionally if you get, like, uh, bored, sometimes this also can be, like, not wanting to pay attention to something. There actually is something that's there that you're, like, not wanting to see. Or if you're in some struggle, sense of struggle with something. Like, what's going on? So oftentimes it's helpful to notice, like, oh, is there something in my mind, in my body, that I'm not wanting to accept, that I'm resisting, paying attention to, resisting knowing? And it's helpful to notice how this is actually a mental phenomenon, this resistance, you know, this resistance to how things are. Let me fix my microphone now. So, for example, you might have had resistance to that noise. Why didn't you fix the microphone? <laughs> Clearly, it's upside down, right? <laughs> um, 
I was, uh, I was telling Pascal I had recently this experience of um, I was teaching in a center in the Pacific Northwest, and they had us in these um, little cottages that were um, very cute, but hadn't seen the light of day in a really, really long time. And so, you know, I went in at first, uh, it seemed really nice, but then I noticed this sort of moldy smell there, just from the dampness, you know, and I was like, oh, okay, it's not pleasant, but can deal with it. Then as the time rolled on, I started to notice like my throat starting to close, you know. And uh, I didn't want to um, have a problem with this. Like I didn't want to have to deal with shifting places. I didn't want to have to move. So I was resistant to this uh, experience. So I was like, I'm not allergic to mold, right? Meanwhile, you know, my throat continues to close. And I was like, I don't want to be allergic to mold. Right? It's inconvenient. You know, this will cause difficulties to, to so, but I was able to see, like, oh yeah, here's the mental level. On the physical level, something is going on that I can see. It's just, like, what's happening. And then on the mental level, there's this resistance to it. Like, not wanting it to be the way it is. Uh, which, you know, if you can really see it, there's something um, both poignant and comical about it. Because it's like, no, clearly, like, there is a problem. <laughs> you know, like, like not, being, not having a throat that can breathe is a problem. That's something to pay attention to, right? But in my mind, I was like, no, no, I don't want it to be like this. Like, but that didn't actually change anything. So part of what we resist is the, this sense of change, too. You know, that everything is always changing. That there's actually a difficulty of finding permanency in this life. So as you sit here, you probably notice this in your body and mind, or upon reflecting upon this, you can see, like, oh yeah, there's actually a lot of different experiences that come through. You know, from the time you arrived here, maybe you had some ideas about uh, how it was going to be, and you came with a certain emotional state. You came with maybe excitement, maybe dread. Uh, probably that shifted. Maybe the excited people turned to dread, and the dreadful, dreading people turned to excitement, you know, right? And then maybe it's flipped uh, many times since then. If this is happening, it's not like it's a problem. So this is normal, right? This is very normal. Or going through rounds of being sleepy and then being restless and being uh, excited and being bored and having doubt, like, why am I here? And then being extremely inspired. So all of this is just a sign that there is actually nothing permanent in the mind-body system to hold on to. There's no physical sensation experience that continues on forever. There's no mental experience. There's no permanency of thought. And also there's no emotions that stay forever. So what this means is actually it's not just the buildings of IMS that are actually changing, but it also is that which we call ourself. So now I'm going to back this up with science for you. So this is from a New York Times article in 2005, and it's called, Your Body is Younger Than You Think. Although people may think of their body as a fairly permanent structure, most of it is in a state of constant flux, as old cells are discarded and new ones generated in their place. Each kind of tissue has its own turnover time, depending in part on the workload endured by its cells. The cells lining the stomach last only five days. The red blood cells, 
bruised and battered after traveling nearly a thousand miles through the maze of the body's circulatory system, last only 120 days on average before being dispatched to their graveyard in the spleen. So that's four months, right? There's a very poetic writer here. The epidermis, or the surface layer of the skin, is recycled every two weeks or so. The reason for this quick replacement is that this is the body's saran wrap, and it can be easily damaged by scratching, solvents, wear, and tear, said an expert on the skin's stem cells. As for the liver, the detoxifier of all the natural plant poisons and drugs that pass your lips, its life on the chemical warfare front is quite short. An adult human liver probably has a turnover time of 300 to 500 days. So it's like one to two years. Other tissues have lifetimes measured in years, not days, but are still far from permanent. Even the bones endure nonstop makeover. So that's the thing we think as most permanent, like going to the skeleton, right? The entire human skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years or so in adults as twin construction crews of bone-dissolving and bone-rebuilding cells combine to remodel it. So this is all constantly happening. So not only is this building under construction, you are under construction, right? Uh, Constantly, continuously. And fed and supported by the food that you eat and the water that you drink and the air that you breathe. So all of the nutrients that we take in from our environment. But there is actually not a permanency as we usually perceive and conceive of it. Now in order to attend to this though, you actually do have to slow down and pay attention. So at the speed at which we usually move and in the way in which we usually live, we don't notice this. We don't notice it, and so then we live in these ideas about how things are instead of the actuality of the way things are. So in the world of the ideas of how things are, you know, we're on this search for happiness, as I mentioned in the metta practice, like from the time we take birth. Like we'd like to be safe, we'd like to be comfortable, we'd like to be happy. And those are all normal things to want. The only thing is our strategy for going about getting those things is basically to look for those in different experiences. So we look for that in finding the right partner. We look for that in finding the right place to live. We look for that in finding the right job. We look for that in getting this certain degree. We look for that in our appearance, maintaining our our physical body appearance in a certain way. And there certainly is pleasure to be had in the world from any of these things. But none of them are ultimately permanently reliable. So our body is always changing, getting older. It isn't always as able to do things as we would like it to. It's liable to injury. Some people know this from a very young age. Some some children have uh, sickness from the time that they're born. And it's very clear to them, like, yeah, there's some... uh, Dukkha is called the strain, stress, difficulty, suffering in life. And there's actually no escape from that. So from the human body, being embodied, if you will, there's no escape. So you can definitely take care of yourself and uh, groom yourself and all of that is good. But eventually, our lives are all leading towards uh, old age, 
possible injury, and eventually death. So now that may seem like a pessimistic statement, but as I had said earlier, the the Dharma is about seeing things as they are. So to me, this is not pessimistic, and it's not optimistic either. It's just true. It's just true. Every single human being who has been born so far has eventually died. Some shorter lifespan, some longer lifespan. So, likely this will happen to you. Now, amazingly, we kind of doubt this in some way, right? This is part of delusion, right? It's like the sense that like, oh yeah, that happened to all these other people, you know. But somehow, like, we're going to escape this. It's kind of crazy, like, you have to laugh about it because it's, it's very, uh, uh, it's like living in this imaginary world. And then when we actually suddenly have to face this, we suffer when we have to face our own mortality. Or when we actually have to face the fact that, for example, uh, our job isn't permanent. Or that the person who we uh, thought was the perfect person uh, actually is changing. Or that uh, the place that we thought was the perfect place to live actually has some flaws or is changing. So it kind of goes to this idea of ownership. Uh, you know, as Pascal was saying, like, what does that actually mean, ownership? Like, what can you actually own? So we would actually like it if we could own and control things so that then we could create these conditions for happiness uh, and basically hold it there. So usually our strategy for happiness is like, I want to get all these things, you know, if, you, if they're on a scale of 1 to 10, I want to get all of these different areas of my like job and my financial life and relationship life and creative life and family and um, you know maybe uh, physical health and you know my automotive health and you know you can name all your main areas of music whatever is important to you so I want to get all those to level ten and then I want to hold it there like forever right and that's when I'll be happy when I can get them all to ten and keep it there. So when I, when I say it like that, it sounds a, a little futile, doesn't it? Because those things never stay the same. And in fact, often in life, there's trade-offs from these different things. So sometimes you're actually very into your job, and you spend a lot of time at work, and then oftentimes like your social life suffers. Right? Or sometimes you're uh, very fit, uh, but then sometimes your family life suffers. Right? So there's all different things that are always moving about, and we want it to be like, take it to 10 and hold it there. But actually, the truth of the way things are is everything's always changing. Everything's kind of dancing around. So where is there happiness to be found if it's not within uh, this strategy of like getting everything to the top and keeping it there? So this is part of the understanding about uh, the Dhamma, the truth of the way things are, is that that isn't a strategy that's going to work. You know? So we'll take this idea of ownership, for example, which is, uh, to me, an interesting one. Uh, so Pascal was mentioning, like, what does that mean, you know, that you own a car? Like, you can't really own a car. So, of course, in a conventional sense, we know that you can, and you have a title to a car, and then you have the keys to the car, and you park it somewhere, and you remember which is your car, and, right, so got that part. But if you own something, you think, like, you should be able to control it. 
So I have a car uh, in San Francisco. My car is, uh, I got it in December 1994. So it's a, now getting to be an older car, 18 years, right? Uh, it still runs pretty well. It's a Toyota Corolla. It's got like less than 100,000 miles on it because I don't really like to drive that much. And the car has actually been like my longest relationship of uh, <laughs> all jobs have changed, like all girlfriends have changed, all apartments have changed. Like the car has been the in my adult life, my, uh, you know. Uh, but actually, what does it mean that this is the car? Because actually all the parts of the car have changed over that time. So all of the tires have been replaced. Right? The windshield has cracked and broken several times. Uh, windshield blades also. Certainly all the fluids in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, significant parts of the engine have fallen apart and then been replaced. So conceptually, I can say like, oh yeah, this is like my car, but it isn't even one thing. This car, you know, it's this changing entity that there is this relationship to, and it continues to change. So I noticed, um, you know, I was trying to clean the hood of the car, and I noticed there were these flecks that I couldn't get off, and then I realized it actually is the hood rusting. You know, it's places where the um, Rocks have hit it and knocked the paint off, and now that's, it's starting to rust. And there's nothing you know, to be done about that. There's so much of it there that it's like, if there's a little, you could, I could kind of sand it off and paint it. But. So eventually, you know, it's decaying, just in the same way that my own body is. You know, the car and I are both like, subject to the elements, wear and tear. So I can't control these things. I can't stop them. And if I were very attached to my car, I'm slightly attached to my car. Very, if I was very attached to my car, like I would suffer a lot. So the extent to which you are like trying to keep something permanent or trying to keep it in a certain uh, way is the extent to which you suffer. So you can notice these kinds of things uh, mostly in the uh, noticing of suffering. So this is a good alarm bell, a good wake-up bell for where you are actually living out of alignment with the truth of the way things are. So where you're actually trying to control people, objects, circumstances, uh, to make them follow according to your scripts. And when you see that, just uh, it's helpful to just see that with a lot of compassion. You know, see that with kindness. See that with compassion. Because this is just a pattern of relating that we have a lot of the time, which is futile and which causes us uh, difficulty. So it's this, everything is always in flux, in a process, in motion. And we'll go into this more here. So uh, let's say this, let's take this uh, stand here that I'm using to put some papers on. So this stand is currently helpful for us here in the Dharma Hall. I put the papers on it. But at one point, this stand was a tree. It's made out of wood, so it was actually a tree. And then prior to that, it was probably some seed. So at the moment, it's a podium, it's a stand, but it actually has been through this process of a seed, and then growing into a tree. The tree was probably inhabited by birds. You know, there was, uh, it had some life. Someone then chopped it down, turned it into lumber. Someone transported that lumber. 
to some factory or craft store or something, and then they made it into this podium. So that's how it is now. So that's true on a relative level. This is podium is a description of this item. After a while, this thing is not going to be here. So this thing is going to start to fall apart. And I can see already there's some places like where it's been touched a lot by human hands where the color is starting to change. So the oil has, uh, you know, of the human hands has started to get on it. And this is actually not the podium that was here 20 years ago, I have to say. There was a, a smaller, simpler podium here. <laughs> so eventually this thing is going to start to decay and they'll decide at some point that it's no longer good for having in the Dharma hall. And then it might get chopped up, uh, tossed in the trash, those uh, dumpsters out back. Then it might get taken to the dump. Then the rain will come and it'll decay more. It'll turn into pulp. It will turn into powder. Worms will inhabit it. And that'll be the end of it. It'll turn back to the earth. So that's the story of this podium. So from seed to tree to lumber to factory to this item. So this is one moment in time. And then on further, it will go to the garbage, to the dump, to the uh, pulp, right back to the earth. And this is true of everything. Like we could tell this story of everything. So the windows are made of glass. Glass at some point was like sand or minerals, right? Formed at the moment into glass. The glass surely is going to break at some point. At that point, it'll be replaced. The glass will go, uh, return to the elements. The floor here, also all wood. At one point, all trees. Trees fell, boom, 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 boom. Cut into boards, transported here, put on the floor. So you could do this with everything. You can see what I'm doing, right? It's telling the story of each of these items in process. So it's like there's this giant kaleidoscope just shifting, 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 shifting with all material items. And then most importantly also actually with ourselves. And this is the truth of the way things are. So what is the implication of this for us? So if we actually were able to live in some harmony with this, kind of like living in harmony with this law of gravity, we would know that that which is present now is true in this relative sense. We can see that, but we also don't need to hold on to it. So I can see this podium and use it now, but I can also know, you know, eventually this is going to be pulp. So when that happens, I don't need to suffer that much. I don't have this belief it's going to be like this forever, and then I'm going to suffer when it changes. And then the same about my own body. So if I actually really understood that deeply, then I know that there's changes happening all the time. And trying to stop that is futile. It's like trying to stop a stream running, a river running. Trying to stop the, the day changing from morning till evening. You know, we are part of nature in this way. Our bodies are part of nature and will return to nature. Actually, in exactly the same way that this podium will return to pulp and then to the earth. Our bodies will also do that. So in understanding that, we can stop seeking permanency in experiences. 
We can stop trying to take refuge in arranging circumstances. We can stop trying to uh, expect things to last that are inherently, in their nature, full of change. So it can seem like that might be some bad news, but actually there's a lot of freedom in that. So the freedom is to relate in the moment to exactly how things are, and then let it go. Like, let the next thing come, let the next thing come, let the next thing come. The freedom comes in actually being able to rest more in openness, so in actually not knowing. So not knowing what's going to happen next. Letting go of our ideas about who people are and how things are. And then actually being able to see, like, oh, what is actually presenting itself now? And being willing to see that and be with that. And then an appropriate response can come. And as we do that, then we realize, like, oh, there's no need, actually, to cling to things. In fact, it's futile to cling to things. It's like trying to grab uh, smoke rings or clouds. You're trying to hold on to those. There's no point in doing that. So we can just let that go, relax. And then slowly from our mind stream gets eradicated these forces of this wobbling of mind, greed, hatred, this movement, these movements like this. So the Buddha talked about this, and he lived from this place. And all of us can see this. And there are different different levels of being able to see this and actually live from this place too. Now the first stage, a lot of the time, is being able to see the ways in which you are not living from this place, which is much less glamorous. And see how much of the time we're actually living in our ideas of things rather than in the truth of the way things are. So for example, a common one on retreat. So you've come on retreat with this batch of 100 people. And you may have known someone, maybe didn't know most of the people here. But you might notice that your mind starts to come up with opinions about different people. In fact, there's a common phenomenon here on retreat uh, one of which is called the Vipassana romance, where you have like an imaginary crush on someone who you know absolutely nothing about. And then there's the other side, the Vipassana vendetta. Right? <laughs> so this is when uh, someone becomes your mortal enemy for uh, hardly any good reason except that they put their shoes in some place or uh, that you didn't like or uh, they breathed in a way that displeased you. You know, uh, or they took a little bit too long serving the salad condiments. They took everything from all the little bowls, and you're like, <laughs> right? So notice this in your mind, and then you know maybe that happened this one time, and then the re- other times you see this person, and they're not actually doing anything to you. That's a problem, but then you remember, you know, this thing, <laughs> right? And your mind has registered this idea that this person is a problem, and I don't like them, and then you react to them. Or the other side, you know, someone, something, you see them do something and somehow you like that, or you like the way they look, you like the way that um, they walk, the walking meditation or something, right? 
And then from that one impression, then off goes the mind into imaginary world, imagining like, oh, you know, we'll probably get along really well. I'll talk to them after the retreat. And then we'll probably go out and, you know, (laughs) eventually we'll get married and we'll have a very mindful life together. We might put a nice shrine in our, in our apartment, right? You know, so you imagine all this stuff. And meanwhile, actually, it's based on nothing. You know, it's based on nothing, but we're like more than willing to spend all this time in the mind entertaining these different fantasies. And it's really based on nothing, right? It's based on like one quick impression, uh, which quite easily could be wrong <laughs> on both sides, right? But so notice this, like notice the lunacy of the mind, you know, like notice the way the mind is constantly making up stories. Notice the way the mind is also constantly finding problems. Uh, It's like a problem machine, like coming up with problems with things, uh, things that need to be figured out or fixed or planned or, you know. So in retreat is a good setting to see this because there's not so many problems. You know, like your life is very simple here and people are putting out food for you and there's not that much you have to do. And then notice the way that the mind is like machinating, creating things, like actually has this habit, this habit of complicating life. So these are all the patterns that it's helpful to notice, you know, the ways in which the mind works, the ways in which our imagined world may or may not be actually aligned with the truth of the world. And it's not that you actually need to kill the mind or squash the, the, the thinking or anything like that. It's just that it's helpful to see through it. You know? So just notice these patterns. Just see how these patterns get kicked up. You look at them with interest. Look at them with compassion if you can too. So these are among the things that it can be, you know, in the beginning, sort of disturbing to notice as you're paying attention. But actually, the more and more that we're able to see this and then actually see through these patterns, the more and more freedom that we have. I'll give you one more illustration of some of this too. So, so you could say that usually, you know, we we have this mind-body process that experiences a lot of different things. So pleasant things, unpleasant things, physical sensations, emotions, thoughts, right? And because of the way that we usually identify with some things, we want them to happen or we don't want them to happen. And so we're kind of pushing them away. So notice how different things come up and they might agree with our self-image or they might not agree with our self-image. And then we relate to them accordingly. So for example, supposing you feel like, oh, I don't, I don't want to feel feelings of sadness. So then whenever a feeling of sadness comes up, you actually have to push it away, turn that corner down, right? Blind yourself to that. Or you feel like, oh, I don't want to feel angry. I'm not an angry person, right? But actually, anger is part of the experience that you have. So then you have to push that away, too. And supposing you don't want to feel physical pain. So physical pain 
inevitable part of the human body. And especially when we do this thing of try to sit here in meditation for some period of time, right? The body acts up, so then we want to push away pain. I don't want that experience. Maybe I don't want certain memories to happen, so I have to push those away. Maybe I don't like certain other emotions. Jealousy comes up, and I don't want to feel jealousy. Then maybe I start to notice some of these things that we're talking about, and you see like how crazy the mind is. It's like, well, I don't want to see that either. So I need to push that away, right? So you see where this is going, is that eventually, here's where you get to live, you know, is like in this teeny, little, tiny, mushed-up square. And it's because of our identification with these different states. So not seeing through them as just these energy patterns that are moving through our body and our mind. So as we're able to actually relax and see them for just what they are, we get to open up and allow the full range of all of this to manifest. And in that, you get back the full range of life. So it's better than that. It's better than having to constantly be putting on blinkers like this. It's actually very tiring to constantly have to do this. And then as we start to attend to everything that arises, we can pay attention more like, oh, what is this thing that even if I wasn't paying attention to it, even if I wasn't bringing it to consciousness, actually does drive me. You know, this fear that I don't want to see, it actually drives me. What is that? Where does that lead? So then we get to discern some of these laws of the way things are. What are the different patterns of mind that lead towards happiness? What are the patterns of mind that lead to suffering? What are the ways in which I habitually relate to people, places, events that is actually connected to what's actually true about reality? And what are the ways in which they're not. So it requires a lot of courage to do this practice. You know, it requires actually a lot of honesty to do this practice. But in some ways, it's like, what else is there to do? You know, what else is there to do? I mean, otherwise you're going around trying to place spoons in midair all the time, right? <laughs> and that's basically what most people are doing most of the time. And then there's spills and there's messes, and we don't see the pattern. You know, we're not noticing why that's happening. So then life is this endless batch of cleanup spills, <laughs> which is actually true. So this is also not to say that you have to become perfect, too. So I want to make sure that's out there, too. You know, all of us are these unique manifestations of life, and the more that we can actually live into this freedom, live into this truth, we can actually manifest whatever gifts and talents and interests we have in this beneficial way for the world, minus this friction of resisting, minus this friction of so much chaos and disharmony. And that's actually a great gift for the world. It's a gift to ourselves and a gift to the world.
And there's a line from a Leonard Cohen song, forget your perfect offering. Uh, everything ha- is cracked. That's what lets the light shine through. Right? So it's not actually that in this freedom we become uh, physically different. It's not that, that in this freedom like we all become the same in some way, like um, sanitized or something like that. Like there still is this beautiful uniqueness of life that shows up in all of us. But we'll be able to share that with the world and to be that actually in a much freer way and actually a much uh, clearer way to interact with others and to contribute to everything. So I encourage you to just pay attention while you're here, you know, in a very gentle way. This is a very good training period to attend to the Dharma, to understand how things are, you know, to align ourselves with that. And this, it's kind of like this, this chiropractic adjustment thing that happens through seeing. You know, sometimes it happens just through hearing the Dharma. And then it can happen through your direct experience of noticing. You know, not because you've heard someone else say it, but because you've seen how this affects this. Like you've seen how your mind and body works. Like you've seen what leads to suffering. You've seen what leads to happiness. And then this alignment happens on this deeper than intellectual level, you know, on this cellular level that then allows you to live from that. So that's one of the reasons why I feel like it's such a good way you've chosen to spend your weekend. It's such a rare thing, you know. Uh, It's such a rare thing, and it's such a good thing to do. And beware also the level of mind that is judging your meditation practice as you're going through this process. So while there is some wisdom of discernment, of understanding what's happening, sometimes there's this level of commentary that's going on that's like, I'm doing it right. I'm not doing it right. Oh, this is a waste of time. I haven't been able to get anywhere. Other people are better than me at it. I'm not cut out for this. All this kind of thing. So you are cut out for this. I mean, even by your uh, interest and the fact that you're here two days in, like you are cut out for this. It's just actually interest in noticing interest in paying attention. And actually a lot of patience in this process. So this is where the kindness comes into. And the training. So it's not like it always will happen just like that. You know? And a lot of what we notice is stuff that we don't want to see, or difficult stuff. Right? But still, each time that you come back, each time that you tune in, you're actually planting the seeds for awareness to continue to grow. You're actually gathering evidence in this uh, lab experiment of your life, you know, to understand the mind-body system and reality. So don't despair, even if you fall asleep 50 times in an hour, even if the mind seems to be like this chaotic animal. Even just seeing that a little and feeling the difficulty of that is actually insight. 
And in this way also, this is actually the best gift that we can give. So learning to listen, learning to tune in will allow you when you go back to relate to other people and away from this place of truth, of honesty, of gentleness, and of openness. So both your connection with the truth of the way things are as it manifests in you, but also as you're open to see it in them. So this building is shifting and changing. And this path of practice has been shifting and moving through time and across continents. And we're all part of this experiment now. Like you're all bringing this into your own life in whatever way it is appropriate. And here's the training ground for you to do that. But then you can bring it out into your own lives and create these different oases of awakening, you know, these points of light all over, too. So thank you for your attention to the Dharma. Thank you for your interest in practice. Let's sit together for a moment or two. So connecting with your own good intentions for being present, for knowing the truth, your own commitment to being honest with yourself and seeing how things really are, and appreciating the courage that that takes. We share the blessings and merit from our practice together with all of our loved ones who have been supporting us and being here this weekend, with all of the others here who we have been practicing with, those we know and those we don't know, with all of the staff, with all of the animals, and with all living beings everywhere. May we all be peaceful and happy. May we all be strong and healthy. May we all be safe. May we all live in alignment with the truth of the way things are.